Amen. So glad you're with us this morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians today and every day for a long time. So find it, bookmark it, figure out how to get there. If you do not have a copy of the Scriptures in a modern English translation, we would love to give you a copy of uh, a Bible that you can read easily so that you're experiencing some of the stuff that we're talking about from the source. You don't have to trust us. Go right to the Bible and read what it says about what God cares about, about how to live the good life, about what is good and how to get it. Uh, and here's, here's a way we're going to do that today. It's one of the places where the Bible's on one spot and we're usually somewhere else, okay? Look, look around at the other people in the room. Get weird. Look backwards. You don't want to do it. I don't want you to do it, but, but you have to do it this morning. I want you to see the other humans in the room. How do you feel about them? I mean, hey, good, Mike. All right, he's going to be an example for us. I, uh, I think most of us say good about some of them, uh, and, and I don't know about most of them. That's fair. But I think the premise of this uh, series is that we want that to change. I mean, if you see the name of the thing, it's the church, and then it says, worth the mess. I hope you understand why we say that. We say that because we're trying to be honest that life together is messy. It's not perfect. Maybe it is in other churches, but at this church with us, with people like us, it's going to be messy. But it's also something to be pursued. It's also something that is good and, in fact, is so good that it's worth the mess. See? Now you get it. Now you understand why. I know you did already. But I just want to underline again why we're saying that because it's possible to relegate all the people you see around you in this room to acquaintances. I have acquaintances. Every day we drop the kids off at school and I see the same people coming and going as we walk. I know a couple of them, the rest of them I have no understanding of, and then there's this sort of middle ground group that I make eye contact with and smile, and neither of us remember how we originally met or what each other's names are or what each other's deal is. It's just easier to do that than to not. When you come here on Sundays and you walk around and you see the other people in the room, there's a lot of this happening. Oh, yes, good, hello, right, yep, uh-huh. And, you know, whoo, keep moving to your spot or to your people because there are people here that you do know and you do like. I mean, how'd you get here in the first place? We're a pop-up church. I mean, to even find us, you have to know somebody, like a speakeasy or something. Like, you'd have to <laughs> have some connection here. But once you kind of find your people you can kind of start turning off everybody else. You can get to a place where most of the people in the room are acquaintances, and most of your friendships actually get shallower and shallower. And here's what I mean by that. I think the Scripture is really clear about the way that people who are, are fallen, which is how the Bible describes all of us, that we are in a state of separation from God. How people who are fallen interact with each other over time. And it, I think... A way to illustrate it is what the passage today is telling us to do, and it's, it's hard. But I say, hey, you need to be friends with more people, and you go, you know, that's, that sounds fine. Uh, having better relationships with a wider group of people means more love in my life, more mess, but I can understand that it's worth it. But then you don't, and here's, I think, why. If you actually become part of this group, there may come a time where we ask you 
to follow Jesus' teaching for us in Matthew 18. Follow the example of what we see here in 1 Corinthians 5. And we ask you to vote somebody out of our membership. Would you do that? It's hard. Hard recoil for most of us. That's the mess part that's way too messy. What if we told you, no, 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 I, I know, nobody wants to do this, we're doing this with tears, but it is what is best for this person so that they realize the lifestyle that they're living is not a Christian lifestyle. I'm not talking about a holy, I'm not talking about a righteous, not a Christian lifestyle. And for us to continue telling them that they're a Christian is us holding their hand away from the Lord, and we're not going to do that anymore. So that's why we're doing what we're doing. It's for their good. Maybe a percentage of, of you might become on board, but it's still super, super difficult. It's super difficult for love reasons, but it's also super difficult because, well, I don't know that I want to set the precedent of people calling people out for their sin. Wouldn't it be easier if we all lived in sort of an acquaintance way and we just sort of have a gentleman's agreement not to ask too many questions so that you don't know about my world and I don't know about your world, which means you don't have to confront me about my world, not to confront you about your world. Do you see the tension? Do you see why it's uphill to have intimacy within a church? Because we all have sin, and because we, when we sin, we want darkness. And it doesn't just mean intellectual darkness. It doesn't just mean like social darkness. It means people not knowing about who you are. The Corinthians were experiencing that. And if you remember what we've been talking about, they were experiencing that for a reason. They, they made this sort of devilish deal to pretend that nobody there was devilish, to pretend that everybody's doing well enough and we're all under grace. And we're going to model what God's like by being accepting. Yeah, that's the word, accepting of other people. That sounds great, and it needs to be the case. We have to be accepting. But they became accepting and even proud of their acceptance of something that God hates. And, man, I tell you, we're going to follow the exact same path if we don't get corrected by the Word today. So let's read it. Go to 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. And we're going to kind of work on this passage by making reference to the subject that he's been talking about in chapters 5 and the first part of chapter 6, where he says, this Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians. And there's a quote here, because these are the kind of things that they might throw back at him. They say in verse 12, all things are lawful for me. And then he responds, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and he will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined in the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 
Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Yowza. Hard. Hard because he's talking about something that actually goes against us at several different points. We're going to explore those. First, if you remember, the context for this several past couple of chapters has been him addressing the deeper issue behind their division. So it, they have a, a, an illness that is presenting with the symptom of division, but the illness is actually pride. The illness is actually them puffing their heads up. And when you puff your head up and you're around a lot of other prickly people, something's going to pop or you're going to have to get away. And that's what starts to happen. They, because they're swelled head people and because they're prickly people, they just start to separate. There's a division that starts to take place. And Paul attacks that underlying situation, not by saying, okay, let's make you get closer together through platitudes about better communication or teamwork or, or, or I don't know, whatever kind of stuff comes up as you try to help groups work better together. No, instead, Paul focuses on their identity. He says things like chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He's very specific. He's talking about exactly what happens to us left to our own devices. And our pride, our head starts to swell and our swollen heads have difficulty dealing with other swollen heads. And yet to be punctured is so painful, we just let them keep growing. This led not only to division, it also led to them being pretty surface level with each other to the point that they all just sort of agreed to accept this man who had started having sexual relations with his stepmother. Now, if, if you were writing a letter as an apostle to a church that had a man who was having sexual relations with his stepmother, I feel like we would address that guy. Hey, I'm going to pause from the letter here for a second and talk to Doug. Doug, you got, you know, like you would address that guy. I don't know what his name was, but, but what Paul does is actually talk to the church because, again, Paul sees this disgusting and deadly symptom as a symptom of a disease, a deeper issue. He says in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And he does instruct them on what to do with this guy. But don't you understand what he's doing here? He's beginning by addressing the people. And he's saying that you have begun to accept not a person, but a specific practice, a practice that is so obviously perverse that Rome at its height still calls it perverse. Go read about what kind of stuff happened in Rome. For them to be able to spot that this was fishy means that it is way fishy. 
And this church in Corinth has decided not just to try to love this person through it, not to restore them in their sin, but to say to that person, hey, we want to just accept your practice. Aren't we broad-minded? Now, that sounds like an argument, but what it really is, is them justifying silence on sin because they all wanted to keep their own ways dark. It was kind of that gentleman's agreement, that kind of Mexican standoff of like, don't you shoot me and I won't shoot you. Don't, don't you confront me and hey, I won't confront you. They start with silence and God forgive us. I think that feels understandable to us. I don't know that you come in here looking for somebody to talk to about your week. Yeah, you got prayer requests about your aunt's leg or whatever, but how often are you telling people about what's going on? It doesn't have to be spill your guts, but to find a relationship where you can be known, I don't think that we're seeking that out. So it started with silence. He didn't say anything. They all knew about it. They all knew about it. But they didn't say anything. They all stayed quiet. And then they began to reason it out. Go back to our text to the last part of chapter 6 here. They start saying things that seem to make sense of the situation. They say, all things are lawful for me. Now, take a second and think about not just the Jewish law, and maybe not even kind of Roman social practices that Paul says would also be against this. But think about what our culture says about somebody like this. No, you can't speed. Yes, you have to pay your taxes. But what two consenting adults do in their own house, I don't know. Does our culture have anything to say against two consenting adults in their own home? I I don't think so. Can you understand why that's a problem? Can you understand why we can't do the same thing as that culturally? I I mean, I I hope that you do. I hope that you can start to understand why in God's grace there would be things that He would say are off limits, even if you feel them to be real, feel them to be attractive to you. Now, the question I think you could ask yourself is, how do we get to a place where modern America, modern, you know, Protestant, evangelical America is doing things that it seemed like the Corinthians were doing? The Corinthians who were doing things that even the Romans would say like, oh, if you're making Nero blush, (laughs) you've got a problem. You've got a big problem. We have a big problem. How'd we get here? Well, you can go up and down the ladder intellectually on how much you want to read. There's all kinds of excellent resources about this kind of stuff. But I don't think you have to go to history books about it. You can. You should if you have the time and the kind of acumen to do it. But I don't think you have to look too far beyond your own heart to understand how we got here. Right? Man, I think we all together understand what it is to want something that God says no to. And then culturally to go further and say that because what I want is so authentic to who I am, therefore it must be right and God's law must be wrong. Alistair Groves, who wrote a book on emotions, my community group's going through right now. 
And he talks about this cultural understanding. He says, you live among a people whose actions and cultural practice proclaim over and over again that what you feel is the most important thing about you. It means that in our culture, a problem with one's feelings is one's biggest problem. It means the greatest harm you can do to someone is to not listen to, give space for, and affirm what that individual feels is needed to feel the way he or she wants to feel, hence the extreme value placed on authenticity, hence the embrace of sexuality as the core of human identity. What do you feel more strongly than sexual attraction? And then you identify based on those feelings. And culturally, those feelings are holy. They can't be argued with. I mean, I'm going to get a counseling degree right now because there is so much interest in mental health because culturally, we want our feelings to feel better. They're so important. So we have this mental health moment. That's why you go and talk to somebody about it. Well, great. All right. I'll sit there and I'll also tell you about Jesus, right? You know, so but you understand that the part of the reason for better help and the part of the reason for all of this emphasis is not only because some of it's really helpful, but because all of us have decided as a culture that our feelings are what matters most. And yet, when you see it just stated boldly, when you see the results of this sort of ethic of feeling that we've all sort of bought into a little bit, then I think you start to understand the problem. There's a lady named Kiki Palmer who's an actress, very successful. And she describes, I think in a really articulate way, what the culture says. I don't belong to anyone else but myself. I have to make my own decisions. Happiness is defined by me. My sexuality is defined by me. And I can make it what I want to make it because I'm the one who makes that choice. Do you agree with this sentence? you don't, can I ask, do your actions agree with this sentence? Paul called out the Corinthians because they were saying the same thing. They said, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Hey man, we have these desires. God who created us put these desires in us. It's what the stomach does. It takes food and it processes it. We have the desire for sexuality and so we express our sexuality. Man, it doesn't really even matter that much. You know, you have things that you shouldn't eat, like poison or whatever, but food is food. You eat your food. Sex is sex. You have your sex. C.S. Lewis did a really good job. He talked about this. The guy that I'm under in my school program, he wrote about this Lewis uh, quote. It was kind of cool. I tried to Google the Lewis quote, and the first thing that came up was my guy's blog. I thought that was interesting, but it's from Mere Christianity, and this is what he says. He says, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act, that is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? Uh, yeah. And you may say, and he continues the argument, that that, food, that country must be a country in famine. You know, the only place we can conceive of that happening would be a place where everybody is so hungry that they would just salivate and sit there and just fetishize a mutton chop. 
But we all know that if you take that analogy back to sexuality, you realize that our culture has more access to sexual activity and sexual expression than almost any culture has had historically. There's no famine. So why do we have the strip teases? I think you have to agree that something is very broken. Something is very perverted. And Paul is responding to these arguments. He's giving a reason for this perversion. He says that when you start to accept your sin, you become dominated by it. All things are lawful for me, is the quote from the Corinthians. And then Paul responds, but not all things are helpful. They repeat, all, all, repeat, all things are lawful for me. But Paul says, but I will not be dominated by anything. Do you understand that if you refuse to see what controls you, it gains more control over you? If you pretend it's not there, if you don't actively fight the thing that controls you, don't you realize it can drag you wherever it chooses? I think we don't understand necessarily what sexuality is like until we try to stop a practice that God says not to and realize that it's like pulling out your teeth. That it it requires desperate communal effort to pull you back. God help us. Why do you think you would be able to, to direct yourself well if you're not actively fighting? If you choose not to fight, you become immediately dominated. Paul says they don't just become dominated, they become deceived. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. He responds immediately, reminding them what is true, what is true and they have forgotten. And God will destroy both one and the other. You exist in a world where we have been separated from God because of our sin and the judgment of God is going to fall on that sin. And you will either pay for that sin yourself Or Jesus will pay for that sin on your behalf. That's the story of the gospel. That's why we celebrate the love of Christ. We're going to talk more about that here in just a second. But judgment is coming. And it falls on you or it falls on him. But death comes for us all. And after death comes the judgment. They deceive themselves by thinking that, man, maybe this doesn't matter. No, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. It's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Ultimately, they're going to be destroyed by it. If you go down to verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person, they sin against his, he sins against his own body. They thought, maybe this doesn't actually affect me. Maybe it's my, my spirit that's free and my body is, you know, this animal thing that's going to die and going to decay. Well, No. God made you a spirit in a body. He made you one of these amphibians that is both spiritual and physical. You are. Your body affects your spirit. You want to talk about counseling? Go read the amount of literature that talks about the physical situation of a person that affects the mental situation of a person and vice versa. Go see a doctor and a therapist. You need both, which you don't need a therapist. Come here, but... But the scripture is very clear that they're attached. I shouldn't have said that. You might need to, you know. But but obviously, the gospel is the ultimate answer. And it's very clear that you can't just say, this only affects my body. It doesn't affect my soul. It does. God, and this is why he's getting so specific about this, has even intended for us to stay amphibious. When we talk about the resurrection, where he says in verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up. 
by his power. Your body does express who you are. What you do with your body does impact who you are. That's why, and don't get too weird with this, but sexually, you literally give yourself. Your DNA is a representation of who you are that is given to the other person in sex. God could have designed it any way he wanted. He made it a poem. Every piece of it has meaning. And when you spill that, you are giving yourself. You're uniting yourself. Man, and that's why Paul calls us. He, he calls us to this greater idea, this greater understanding of what sex is. That you don't just see the death and decay and destruction and domination of sexual sin if you want to walk away with it, uh, walk away from it. You should see those negative things, but you also have to see a positive thing. You also have to walk to something. You say no to heroin, to say t- yes to living life with people again. You say no to all this death and decay, and you say yes to something else. What do you say yes to? Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, two will become one flesh. And he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Do you see what he's saying? Do you see why he cares what you do with your body? He cares what you do with your body because you are his. And I said that judgment is going to fall on all of us because we have been separated from God from our sin unless it falls on Christ because the gospel is that Jesus has come to live this perfect life and die on our behalf, to drink the wrath of God on our behalf, to stand before God. I mean, Kelsey was reading about Moses hearing from God about who he is. That happens right after the golden calf thing. And Moses has to stand before God on, the, on behalf of the people of Israel and say, please don't crush them. If you crush them, blot me out of your book. God immediately says, you don't know what you're talking about. Okay, I'm not going to do that, but no. What happened on the cross is that Jesus was blotted out of the book. He was literally given hell, drank the wrath of God, the fullness of the wrath of God, drank hell so that you could be forgiven. When he does that, he doesn't just restore you to zero and allow you to go your own way. He does that to adopt you to himself, to reunite you between you and God, to have that relationship, that only way to life, reunited, reconstituted, and reconstituted in such a way that He knows you, He loves you, He's with you. You become His and He becomes yours. In Christian marriage, not in some sort of Buddhism understanding of like the illusion of individuality kind of getting like melded together into the eternal consciousness, and forgive me for not having my terms right on that. No, Christian understanding of love is individual and individual who come together. Beautifully pictured through right sexuality, where the man serves his wife and the wife serves her husband. But picture of the union of God and man as seen through Christ coming to adopt us together into his family. That's why he says it matters what you do sexually. Not only will it destroy you if you do it your way instead of God's way, if you do this, you are actually uniting what is Christ's with something filthy. Walk through it. Why does he care? I care if my dog goes running all around the neighborhood meeting lady dogs. I care about that. 
You know, we had surgical repercussions so that he doesn't go make, you know, baby, baby dogs all over the place, and who knows what kind of diseases and weird problems might happen. I don't want my dog doing that. But I have a whole different level of concern if my spouse goes all over town. Who do you think you are to Jesus? Are you his shoe? Yeah, maybe he doesn't want his shoe to get dirty. You're not his shoe. You're his spouse. He doesn't want you to get dirty. He doesn't want you to give yourself like that. When you have time, go read Jeremiah. Go read Ezekiel and see how he talks about how Israel has left him to become a harlot with the idols, with the nations. How he loved her and brought her from from filth into beauty and from beauty into great pleasure and joy. And how she traded all of it to go back, not even to being a prostitute, because a prostitute gets paid, to becoming something worse, something other, something less than. Our sexual deviance is exactly that. And that underlying idea that you and I get to choose whatever we want to do because it's what we feel and we have to be authentic to what we feel is a lie. You need to choose. Instead of that lie, you need to choose the love that God has for you in Christ. What an honor. He's not telling you to be better. He's telling you to be His. Oh, that's why I can finish with verses 19 and 20. Don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. What are you supposed to do with this information? Come to the light. Hey, I mean, by the numbers, you're all addicted to porn. Come to the light. You don't have to be. I'm telling you, it can be done. Really, truly done. The desire will continue to shrink. Your self-control will continue to go up. And the date since the last time you did it will get longer and longer and longer until eventually, by the grace of God, you know, you don't, you're not proud because you're going to fall if you're proud, but... By the grace of God, it becomes something that's past tense in your life. Maybe for you, you're trying to describe yourself by categories that God does not recognize as anything helpful or holy. For you, just like for the people that have heterosexual sin, let us help. Let us step in together. Don't do it alone. You can't. Let somebody walk beside you and show you real, non-judgmental love and acceptance of you and help you with every ounce of energy that you have to hate something that God hates. And take the steps that we need to take to have the desires that God doesn't want slowly go down, the self-control to slowly go up, and the date since the last time slowly get longer and longer as you look up to Him and stop buying into the lie that's preached in every movie, every TV show, every song, every new program. Here's a quote. If you want to go up higher on the ladder of like intellectual kind of assessment of what's going on in the world, there's a guy named Carl R. Truman, wrote a book called Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He says, while sex may be presented today as little more than a recreational activity, sexuality, meaning the way that you define yourself and what you're attracted to, is presented as that which lies at the very heart of what it means to be an authentic person. That's a profound claim and is arguably unprecedented in history. You and I 
don't just have Christ to think about with this. We don't just have each other to think about with this. You have a world that if they don't hear what's right from us, is going to continue to believe something that will deceive, dominate, and destroy them. Brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm sorry for the heavy tone of today's message, but this is a place where we have screwed up. And the only way we're going to get better is if each one of you Pray for grace from God and then speak to somebody about what's going on in your world. And then marvel as you find that, man, these people are actually really gracious. They're also people that understand that they too are sinners. They're not going to make excuses for my sin so they can continue in their sin. But they're going to love me and help me walk in a, a restoration. If you don't know anybody here, I hope that I have the honor of being somebody that you would speak to about something like this. Obviously, I have a cold, so I won't shake your hand, but I'll I'll listen to you and get your email address. Listen, God has so much more for you than what the world is selling. See it and accept it for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've given us this word. It can be really hard to hear, but we know, Father, that it's so good. Medicine is often bitter in the mouth, and yet it makes us feel so much better. Lord, let us turn from what will kill us to what will give us life, and life with a capital L, Father. Let us know life, life named Jesus. <laughs> Father, thank you for being the one that we love, being the one who loves us, being the one who died to forgive us because you love us so much that you will make a way, and this is exactly what you told Moses, that you will make a way to forgive our iniquity and our transgressions and our sins. Father, have us reach out to you today by reaching out to each other. Members together in the body of Christ, that we would be reaching out to the thing that is closest in this world to you, which is the other people that you have called to yourself. Let us experience the joy of being an authentic Christian community who knows one another well, hates sin, confesses failure, and continues to walk towards purity for your glory and the good of your kingdom. We love you, sir. In your holy name we pray. Amen.